Please turn to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 6 to 13. Romans 9, verses 6 to 13. It's two short paragraphs. In the first uh, section of my sermon, I want you to be thinking about Israel. And is Israel a victim of God's broken promise? That's the first thought I want you to have in mind as we're reading this couple paragraphs. Israel, victim of God's broken promise. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But, quote, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. Quote, At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, I want to remind you that Romans chapter 9 and these considerations of election, which is one of the main subjects here in, in Romans chapter 9, I believe is one of the more challenging doctrinal subjects in our faith. It's a very, very uh, difficult doctrine to believe the way the Bible teaches it. And uh, as, as you will recall, we've, we've tried to bring to light... Um, especially in our study of the book of John, when the Lord Jesus spoke to crowds, to, to audiences who were listening to him, many times their, their anger at him and their unbelief of him gets a reply from the Lord Jesus that says, you don't understand me because you are not God's children. You are like your father. And this is an infuriating thing for the Lord Jesus to say. People don't like to hear that they don't like him and they don't like God because they're not his children. And it makes them mad. This lesson that we are diving into here is really important for us understanding why are some people who consider themselves God's children not his children? What is going on in this consideration of who is true Israel and who is false Israel? And why is he raising this question? One of the first points that we touched on last week, and, and this theme comes through the whole chapter, has to do with this, this idea, was God's word effective or not effective? And that's what it starts with there in verse 6. He says, it's not as though God's word was without effect. Our 
sight, your ability to perceive what's happened gospel-wise in, in the gospel history as Paul is preaching and teaching, what you could see of who has come to Christ, who has believed Christ according to the preaching of the gospel that Paul is teaching to us and explaining to us. Your eyes and your experience would tell you most of Israel has not come to Christ and come to faith and come to hope and salvation. You would see and understand that in Paul's day. And so knowing that most of Israel does not seek peace with God by righteousness in Christ, knowing that brings into question the validity of God's promise to Abraham thousands of years earlier. Paul, you're explaining to us a gospel that announces how it is we have peace with God, how it is we count ourselves God's children. And if that's true, then most of Israel doesn't believe what you're talking about. And if most of Israel doesn't believe, you're basically saying that God's promise to them is a broken promise. And God's word, his, his word is no good. His word is not valid. That's what you're saying, Paul. But Israel does not come to God through Christ. By and large, Israel does not come to God, even today. By and large, Israel does not come to him through Christ. This is an area of huge misunderstanding of the, of the covenant. Israel comes to God, they would say, inside of Abraham's promise. They'd say God promised it to Abraham or Abraham's children. God's blessing is ours. So they think. But, however, God did not promise Abraham and Moses that Israel would know God's blessing and have life in his rest. These are big doctrinal words. These are huge words that are just so packed with, with meaning. And, and I hope you are able to take in some of the meaning. But that Israel would know God's blessing and have life in his rest if they are in the covenant of Abraham. They think they're in the covenant of Abraham. They think that word given to Abraham includes them. And, and on that basis, they, they bring themselves and in, in, in their hope to God. And last chapter's big promise, the, 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 the last chapter lays this groundwork down and it says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can. And so that hope and that assurance in light of what seems to be the majority of those who have heard God's word not enjoying that security, it seems like hypocrisy. It seems like there's something broken in God's word. What can separate us from the love of God and Christ? Well, all of these people are separated from you who think they're in Abraham. There's a conflict that's being addressed in the teaching of the apostle. But Paul's gospel insists that Israel is separated from God. By and large, the majority of, of Israel is separated from him, although God promised to bless them. 
Now, don't get that wrong. Don't be mistaken. God promised to bless Israel. Okay? So Israel's hope that God meant to bless them has got a lot of pieces of tapestry of truth in it. They're not totally off the wall in thinking that God desires to bless them and, and care for them. And so Paul, the apostle, is, is explaining to us the terms and the means of Abraham's promise fulfillment. The terms and the means. So we're going to focus on terms meaning words. Means meaning way. Okay? The terms and the means of Abraham's promise fulfillment and also the principle of true Israel's existence in relation to God's word and promise. So these are kind of like three concepts. The terms and the means and who true Israel actually is in relation to God's word and promise. These three things will, will, will get flushed out pretty well in our in our time this morning. So let's think first about the terms and the means by Isaac. Terms and the means by Isaac is the first thing that the apostle speaks about. So verse 6, we're being taught that the word has been effective. Okay, he says, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's been effective for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Trying to figure out the right relationship to Abraham is going to be done by understanding these terms. The end of verse 7 you look at the passage there, at the end of verse 7, we see, In Isaac, your seed shall be called. You see that? Israel was to expect something from God's word. Now, that theme of God's word and the effective word, I want you to remember, I want you to, I want you to recognize the fact that he's teaching us that it's not that the word was of no effect, and so he's teaching us what is the effective word. And so here we see a word. We see this reference to the, the end of verse 7 there, where he says, In Isaac your seed shall be called. The word spoke to Abraham about Isaac. So note that. Make a note of it. Mark it somehow. Help yourself remember that. Now, Genesis 17, 19, I believe we probably read this uh, a week ago. I'm not positive, but Genesis 17, 19. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Now, the reason he said no there, when he says no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear a child is because Abraham and his wife's maid, his wife's helper, they had a child together. And Abraham felt that that child should be the one to be favored. That should be the one to carry on the inheritance. Abraham's concerned that, well, we, we have had this child, God, you promised it to us, and so we had... We had Ishmael by Hagar. 
But listen to the words in Genesis. God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So the terms, okay, the terms, the words necessarily exclude this real child. There is a kid named Ishmael. He's a child of Abraham. And yet the terms, the words, exclude him. Do you see that? True Israel has to see that its existence is or will be according to the terms of God's word. Is that plain? Is that easy to understand? True Israel will exist because of the terms of God's word. God's word said what Israel is going to be. And it's not going to be Ishmael. You see that? Therefore, not all children of Abraham, not all the children, Ishmael, are the children referred to in the promise. Not all the children are promised children. Only some of the children are promised children, referred to in the promise. The one promised is the true child. The one promised. So, listen, think about this. We're going to see this pattern. The word, God's word, precedes child. God's word precedes fulfillment and reality. In other words, true Israel is it's reality because of the spoken word, God's word that precedes it. You see that? The word of God, the powerful word of God makes the thing that he says is the thing. His word says, here is my place of blessing. It's in Isaac. That's it. His word dictates it. This is the first inference to election. I want you to start thinking in terms of what does election mean. It's used in our passage. Election means choosing. Election and choosing are involved here, and, and we want to begin to build a biblical groundwork, a biblical framework for understanding what does election mean. When the New Testament uses this idea or teaches about this idea of election, it's not a super common word. It shows up only a handful of times in the New Testament. What is it for? What does the word mean? How do we understand it? This is the first inference to it. They are not true children if God has not foretold them. You see that? God did not foretell Ishmael. And therefore he is out of the covenant blessing. Okay? And God to Abraham is very articulate about this. So notice that. Ishmael is not a child of promise. The words of the promise are explicit and particular, meaning that God only intended to make himself a people by the people of his promise, Isaac. So unless the child is born according to the promise, the child cannot be true Israel. Can you see that? The question that starts this whole thing is, is not all are Israel. Who are Israel? And now he is explaining why. The reason why is, God is saying, because all the children are not what I said. I said, who? 
is my blessed people. I said who they are. And the first one we learn about is Isaac. Promise precedes child. Now, what will we substitute for the word promise? Election. Election precedes child. See it there. It is what is being said. Now, let's think for a moment about the means of how the promise is kept. It's, it's just a little bit alluded to, a little bit is taught about it. God chose to create and unfold his promise in Isaac. Isaac is an impossible child according to nature. You see that? Why do I say Isaac is an impossible child according to nature? Is his mom giving birth to children right and left? No. Isaac's mother does not have children. She is barren. She cannot give birth to children. She is a barren woman. She's like 90 years old when she conceives and becomes pregnant with Isaac. So this is the first thing to notice. Isaac is an impossible child according to nature. In other words, nature does not explain the existence of Isaac. Do you see that? What explains his existence? What explains his personhood? A miracle does. The supernatural work of God explains why and even how he came into existence. God made a promise and then God fulfilled the promise. And no man can say, well... I mean, she, I mean, all women have kids. Don't say that this is the work of God and a, and a, and a miracle. And, and what we say after reading this, when God is introducing you and I, the concept of election and what it's all about, we can't say that. We can say for sure she does not have kids. She can't. God must miraculously give life. He must miraculously give existence. And this is the reality in Isaac. God's means of fulfilling his word, God's means of fulfilling his promise is in superseding nature. You see that? It's not going along with nature. It's in doing what nature or natural processes won't do. Natural processes won't make this Isaac. He is a miracle. We got to recognize that. God speaks an impossible and particular word. You see, the word that was promised was a, a, a differentiating word. In other words, his promise, both Sarah and Abraham and Hagar all kind of kind of conspire together, right? That, that Ishmael would certainly fit in the bounds of, of, of accomplishing this, this thing that God wanted to do. But no, God's promise and his word was particular. What could not be born, what cannot be born, what is not possible, is born in obedience to the word of God. You see that? God's word said this is what's going to be. Why did she get pregnant and give birth to a child? Literally, time and, and, and life must be in accordance to and in obedience to the word of God. That's how we explain the birth of Isaac. And we should be awed by it. We are to be, wow. God made an impossible promise and he created a life in the womb of a woman who could not bear children because he promised it. 
Ishmael is birthed a natural birth. Israel is birthed not according, I'm sorry, Ishmael, I think I said Israel, Ishmael is not born according to promise. But Isaac himself could say, my life, I am a miracle. There is no explanation for me unless God had intervened and created me. Isaac can see his own life in this way. That God's intervention is the chief explanation of who he is. He might be able to say, yeah, she's my mom. She gave me birth, but how did that happen? Where did my life come from? Where did my conception come from? God intervened and he created and made me. The child of promise is true Israel. And the terms of the promise and the means of the promise are God's purpose revealed. God is revealing his purpose as he's doing what he's doing in this son. He's demonstrating his power and his glory is being magnified. When men perceive what is taking place in this story, we glorify him. We see God's amazing, staggering power at work. So let's think also now carefully because the next example given in Romans 9 teaches the very same lesson. I'm not teaching you something the lesson doesn't teach. These lines teach what I'm telling you. And one of the easiest reasons you have to believe I'm teaching you this correctly is because the next illustration teaches the very same thing. At verse 10, the illustration is repeated. Look at verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, Rebecca. How many children does Rebecca have? Did we read this in Genesis last week? She's barren. Rebecca can't have children. Rebecca's husband prays for her that she could have children. So the illustration, after we've contemplated Isaac, he goes on to say, not only this, but when Rebecca also conceived, or in other words, here's another miracle child. Here's another birth that is not possible. Let me tell you about another child who was born who could not have been born naturally. Rebecca conceived by one man, even our father Isaac. And then he takes a sidestep here. He says, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So in Genesis 25... Isaac, an older man at this point, remember Abraham's miracle child, Isaac, he's praying for his wife. He's praying for Rebecca. He's praying for a child that is impossible to conceive. And I thought actually, I, I, I noted a, a couple different commentators remarked that this longing for the child and, and the intercession on the part of the husband is a right 
Christian attitude as you and I are contemplating, you know, the lostness of, of somebody that we desire to, to be saved. We, we, we long for someone to know salvation, prayer, intercession. Lord, give them faith. Lord, give them life in the spirit. Lord, bring them to yourself. Isaac is a picture of the of the intercessor who knows there will be no life unless God intervenes and makes this life. So there is this prayer of this man who isn't yet a father. This man who is not yet a father also knows that the promise to his father, the promise was to him. Isaac knew that the covenant promise was to him and his descendants following him. And so his prayer is a prayer given in knowledge of the promise. And it's a desire that the promise would be fulfilled and the promise would be carried out in him. And so his prayer for child is in perfect keeping with the promise made to his father. So Isaac prays for his wife's impossible child, a miraculous child, and she conceives. And when she conceives, the word of God comes to her after conception. Romans 9.12 speaks about this in Genesis 25.23 says this. So in Genesis, after she becomes pregnant, then she gets spoken to by the Lord. What does the Lord tell her? The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. So the miraculous birth and the line of blessing through the younger is explained to us as having a purpose. In other words, when it says that this conception of older serving younger, there is a purpose to this. There is a reason that the older will serve the younger. There are two miraculous children, and this is why this illustration is saying the same thing that the last illustration said to us. There's two children. The second is always the subservient one. In, in, in the culture of this people, every Jew, every Jew listening to this story knows the younger serves the older. The, the oldest child is the one who, if we could put it this way, he, he's the master or he's the king. He's the heir. There are two miraculous children, but this says that the second, who should be subservient, is announced to be the master while the first is the subject. It's reversed. Why is it reversed? Why does God announce before they're born that this is reversed? I don't think this impacts any of us as powerfully as it would have the Jews, but the Jews see the irony in this reversal of nature. You see that? The apostle teaches us that this takes place so that God's purpose in election might stand. That's what it says right in the text. The reason that it is reversed is so that God's purpose in election might stand. 
10 to 13, not only this, when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We realize God's word regarding Jacob. God's word regarding the younger was for the purpose of reinforcing or establishing his purposes, God's purposes, God's intentions, God's plans. This is because of God's purpose according to election. It's the Jews themselves think about the history of these two men. Every Jew knows the history of these two men. What are their names? You guys know their names. Esau and Jacob. The Jews know the history of these two men. They know of the miraculous birth of these two men. And they also know what was the complete, unpredictable reversal of their roles in life as men. The Jews know that. The way their lives played out was a complete reversal. And they knew that. So that in itself is an event. It's a testimony to the Jews contemplating this lesson. They know this testimony. It is laid out before them as if to say, look, you've got to see this story. You've got to remember the details of this story. As you're thinking about who is true Israel and who is not true Israel, you know what I'm saying to you is true because the word of God came to Rebekah, told her that the older will serve the younger. And you know that this is true. And this was done so that you can see God's purpose in election is primary. God's election is what explains true Israel. You, Israel, who is trying to figure out Paul's gospel and understand true and false Israel that he's introduced just moments ago, this is the explanation of it. God has done these things so that we can understand it is his election that is in the process of making and creating a people. This is to teach you and I and them about God's electing authority and God's electing manner. How he does it. His manner of accomplishing this great work. There's a handout on the back table. You don't have to go get it right now. I prepared it for you with three different uh definitions of election on it, that if you're interested in the subject, this gives a pretty decent uh, short version of, of what election is according to a couple different uh, theological dictionaries. It means choosing. It means to choose. It means God chooses. God chooses according to his divine will. That's why we read just a moment ago, if you look down in your Bible, verse 11 said, The children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, 
that the purpose of God according to election might stand. What did he mean when he said they haven't done anything good or evil? Why did he say that? They weren't born. They haven't done anything good or evil. Because the good and evil things men do is what men think predicates their blessing or their not blessing. That's the natural way we think about it. But in order to teach you and me that God's purposes according to election are going to stand and explain are the rule. He says, before anybody was born, I'm saying right now, this is how it's going to be. And all of us are supposed to read that and hear that and go, how can you do that? That just doesn't seem fair. Esau was born first. He's the one who has the right as the heir. It's supposed to make us feel that way. It's supposed to make us think that way. The birth, the birth itself is a miracle. The choice of the younger to be the master is a miracle. It's, it's uncanny. It's unnatural. Everything about this story is meant to show you God said he was going to do it, and he did. And you should have your eyes popping out of your head. You should marvel at the authority of God. The children of promise are a child in particular. They are miraculous. They are not according to nature. Nature doesn't explain these children. And this so far is very clear in these two illustrations. I think they're great things for you and I to, to dig into and think about on what we've read so far. So let's think for just a couple of minutes on this idea of God's purpose according to election. We want to look at this sentence and see if we can make a little bit of sense of it. It's a hard sentence to read. In, uh, in parentheses there, verse 11, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. I'm just going to rearrange the phrases a little bit for you to help us all make a little bit more simple sense of, of what he was saying there, okay? So it was said, we see there in verse 12, it was said, okay? God's speaking is the first thing that happens. We could also say God's electing, okay? The first thing that happens is election. Or it was said. The effective word, you see how this theme of it was not as though God's word had not been effective. It is effective, and so here, here is the effective word, speaking. It was said, preceding everything else. The word says, you remember what it says? The older serve the younger. This is the first thing that happens. It also says what the motive of this word is. Why this unnatural relation between older and younger? There, there's a motive here. There's a reason why he said that. So the word is spoken, and then we can find the reason for it in the same phrase. That is purpose according to election would stand. He said it, and he had a reason. Why did you say it this way? Why, why did you say this thing and not some other thing? Why are you going to create this paradigm, God, and, and not some other thing? Because... It's important, his purpose according to election would stand. His purpose according to election 
highlights his authority. It highlights his power. It highlights God. It highlights his centrality. It highlights his volition. Or in other words, his will. What does is, what is he want to do? What is he going to do? He speaks it in this way that his purpose according to election would stand. He speaks it this way so that we could recognize he is the one who is the author. He is the one who is acting. He is the one who is about doing. Who does the calling? Verse 11. Children not yet born nor having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand out of works, but of him who calls. Who calls? Who's the caller? Who's the speaker? Who's the word giver? It's God. This is the, the main thing on the stage. Him who calls. His purpose, according to election, is so that you would know that he is the one speaking. He is the one creating. He is the one calling. He is the one making it so. Over and above what is natural. Okay? Of him who works is in contrast. Him who works is in the same phrase there. Not of works, but of him who calls. Not of man's effort. Not of man's plannings or schemings, but of him who calls. God's word is the thing that creates the reality. God's word is powerful and effective and is about creating true Israel. The illustration of Rebecca's conception and the naturally unfavored younger child, in other words, you know, not, not, not the one, the, the, the favored one is the oldest one, and that's just the rule. So it's unnatural that the younger is the head. So her conception and the naturally unfavored younger child given the advantage and blessing over the older one is done so that men could observe the truthfulness and the reality of God's election being the true way to understand Israel. You see that? You see how these two pictures given to us are meant to teach you that? What is true Israel and not true Israel? Why are some of Israel not true Israel, Paul? Why? How? Election is the explanation. Standing our election is, is, is held up. It's portrayed that his purposes according to election might stand. They might be forthright. They might be the most easy thing to see. God's election. And his purposes by election are the thing left there for you to see when you see what you see. Not of works. Not good or evil deeds of the one who is born. It's not how we can explain what we're seeing, what we're understanding. Men's works and men's means and men's traditions are what natural men claim as their merit before God. 
It is in man's nature to see the deeds and the, and the thoughts and the works and his own concepts of his self-righteousness. It is natural for men to feel this is what he's going to bring to God and this will be the basis by which he will find God's approval and have eternal life. And we're being taught here by the apostle this is not how it works. And the reason this is not how it works is so that all of those who are receiving the blessing, who are in the blessing, all of those who have received God's favor and his election, they will have not an iota of their own claim, their own merit, their own anything by which to say, look at what I've done, look at what I have, look at how I've made this happen. The point is, is that God is the ultimate, complete, entire Savior. No true Israel, no true son can say anything except for thank you for your unfathomable grace and mercy. The, 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 the contrast when he says, Jacob I have loved. And Esau I have hated is one of the more difficult phrases in the New Testament. God, that's not fair is what you want to say. God, you don't hate him, God. You don't hate anybody. But read what your Bible says. What is the point of you seeing these two contrasted like this? What is the point? The point is, is you see God choosing one, not both. Blessing one, not both. Why? You want God to give a justification of it? You want him to defend himself to you? The Bible's got many arguments against you asking much more than what we've asked. We're treading on the thin ice when we say, God, why, why would you do that? That's not right. That's not fair. The Bible even asks that question in the context here. I'll give you a little bit of help in understanding Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. The Lord Jesus teaches, unless you hate father or mother more than me, you cannot be my disciple. You remember that? The Lord Jesus says that. Unless you hate your father or mother more than me, then you cannot be my disciple. The Lord Jesus says that. I'm not going to go into it right now. Look it up. Write it down. You cannot be the Lord's disciple unless you hate mother or father, child. What that means is, is he is your number one. You don't hate your mother. You don't hate your spouse. You don't hate your child the way you and I are thinking about hate. I, I'm not entirely sure if I'm... If, we might be able to say something like prefer. I, that's probably the wrong word. But as you and I try to explain, why did God take Jacob and not Esau? Because he chose to take Jacob. He chose to choose Jacob and not Esau. And the scripture is plain. That's what it says. So when you and I find ourselves struggling understanding the justice of God or the fairness of God, we shut up. And we ask the Lord, Lord, help us, help us understand as much as we can understand about this. The reason that this is true gets fleshed out more and more as we work through our text here. The apostle teaches us that Abraham's children and Isaac's children 
demonstrate the true way, the right way to understand who is true Israel and who is not. Who is a child of true Israel? His child, who is a child because God spoke him. God chose him. God created him pre-time. Think of these two children. Did they exist? Did Isaac exist when he said in Isaac, your seed shall be counted? He didn't even exist. Isaac didn't exist when he said, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Why does true Israel exist? Because God speaks it. God promises it. God elects it. He chooses it. So really quickly here, God foretells these children to and by an impossible means. To exist by an impossible means. In other words, the new birth, think very, very quickly with me. Nicodemus gets told, marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. This is a miraculous birth. You cannot do it. It is, you are not born of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit, is what it says in John chapter 1. If you're a Christian, if you have faith and hope in Christ, and if you expect and plan to have eternal life with Him, you have been given life by the Spirit. You didn't birth yourself. Why were you birthed in the Spirit, by the Spirit? Why? Because God spoke of people. God promised an Israel. So God foretells them. God produced them. He produced them. When his word foretells, his word produces. The new birth. One thing you should all realize is that the Christian life is a supernatural reality. If you have repented of your sin and put your faith and hope in Christ, you realize that there is no explanation for your hope and trust in Christ and in the blood of Christ except for that God has caused you to be soft, drawn you to himself, drawn you to put faith and hope in him. Because when you look at your average unbeliever, any unbeliever, what's different between them and you? Are you more smart than them? Are you more spiritual than them? Are you more biblically literate than them? Why is it you have come to faith in Christ and your son or your friend hasn't? Why? The only explanation is that God miraculously has created in you life by the Spirit. God produces them. Finally, the thing that he makes, the, the thing that he creates, this true Israel is in a paradigm or it's in a system where his particular choice can be seen. It's apparent. Isaac's uniqueness is seen. You can see it. Isaac's miraculousness can be seen by the evidences of God's choice on the children of his making. In other words, Isaac, years down the road, can see even his own life. Other people could look at Isaac years down the road and see he is in the path, he is in the stream of God's work.
Children of God's blessing, children of the promise, are brought into being by the authority and the power of God's word. We're going to look at two verses and we're done. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Christians who can rightly hope in God for eternal life, for God's blessing, are brought into being by the authority and the power of God's word. Look at Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Now, the people being contrasted are Israel in the wilderness who would not enter the promised land by faith. Okay, so he's saying they heard a preached word. They heard the word preached. Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Do you hear that? What is it that takes somebody into the promised land? Hearing with faith. Why did some die in unbelief? Because the word they heard was the word ineffective, is the word without power. It is if they don't have any faith. If they can't hear it and believe in it, then it doesn't affect them. Why is the word effective when it's heard and believed? The effective word is heard and believed. You hear and believe it. God's word is powerful and it's effective. So children of God's blessing are brought into being by the authoritative and the effective word of God. Do you hear me? You hear his word. If you are unmoved by his word, if his word is just noise going in one ear and coming out the other, it it is not doing salvation in you. It is not drawing you close to the creator and the savior. It's noise. The effective word moves you to repentance and hope in Christ. It moves you to following your savior. Look at 1 Peter 1, 22 and 25. Speaking to converted people here, pilgrims of the dispersion are listening to Peter write to them. He says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit, you see how the new birth, the, the, the one being given new birth hears the word of God by the help of the spirit. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. You see that there is a life given to the children of God that is a miraculous life that comes by the word of God. You see that? Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because, keep reading. All flesh is grass. All humanity, all people are grass. 
That means temporary. That means quick to die and turn to dust. All the glory of man is as the flower of grass. In other words, your glory is nothing. Your best and greatest is nothing. The grass withers. Its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Do you see that? The effective word of God. The word of God creates the life. The word of God is powerful and effective to make and create a true Israel. And by your heart, knowing the gospel, knowing your condemnation and sin, repenting of your sin and grabbing a hold of Christ, putting your faith and hope in Christ as your only righteousness and hope in eternal life, this faith unites you to God by Christ and you have become the children of God by faith. God's electing word is why there are believing sons and daughters. God's electing word is why there's a true Israel. I hope these lines in this explanation of, of election and the powerful word of God has been helpful and insightful to you. I'd be available for you to dare this week. If you want to look at some more of these things together, I'd be happy to. I'm going to just close in a word of prayer and we'll have lunch together. Oh God, I thank you for these words in Romans. Teach us about Isaac and Jacob and Esau. Lord, thank you for pointing out and teaching us that these miraculous children and even the strange order of their rule and authority is to teach us about the priority of your purposes according to election, Lord. Oh Lord, may we guard our hearts against offense. May we love, may we love your word, Lord. May we be conformed and do a people who bear your marks and your wisdom. Lord, strengthen your people today. Encourage and bless your people today. In Christ's name, amen.